Hello and welcome to the Gamers Tavern. This week we're talking about conventions. We've got some amazing guests involved in some of the best conventions in the country, both big and small, to give you a little peek behind the curtain. Speaking of peeking behind the curtain, if you want to know more about what it's like to record Gamers Tavern, you can find out in person at ChupacabraCon in Austin, Texas, January 9th through the 11th. Ross and I will be recording at the convention and on Sunday record episodes of both Gamers Tavern and Gamers Tavern Game Table live in front of an audience. There's also some amazing guests, including former Gamers Tavern guests, Sean Patrick Fannin, Shane Hensley, Steve Kinson, Jennifer Renee, and a lot, lot more. If you want to find out more, go to ChupacabraCon.com. With that said, grab a drink from the bar and take a seat at the table in the corner, and we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Have you been looking for a dark fantasy RPG setting? Are you interested in seeing a new take on the action horror genre? Then you should check out Accursed. Accursed is a setting for the Savage Worlds RPG created by me, Ross Watson, and my good friends Jason Marker and John Dunn. It is a world where the heroes are monsters who fight for redemption against the witches who have conquered their land. To find out more about Accursed, search for Accursed on drivethroughrpg.com. Accursed is now on sale there and in many other fine retailers for gaming PDFs. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy Accursed. Welcome to episode number 43 of the Gamers Tavern Podcast. I'm your host, Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott Jr. And tonight we have with us three great guests who all happen to be convention organizers. We have with us Sheena Colbath of ChupacabraCon. Hello. We have Mr. Joe Charles of Comic Palooza. Hello. And Mr. Ed Doolittle from Tacticon and GengisCon right here in Denver, Colorado. Hello. Uh, welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, we're really glad to have you because tonight we're going to talk about gaming conventions and organizing them and do all the things that you guys do and kind of tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, what's awesome about going to a gaming convention. But before we jump into that, we always do a thing here on the Gamers Tavern where we tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you've been doing and where they might know you from in the form of a gaming character sheet. <laughs> So I would actually like to start with Sheena. Sheena, can you tell our listeners about yourself and where they might know you from as a gaming character sheet? All right. So player name would be Sheena Colbath. <laughs> character name would be Weeb, W-E-E-B. Um, that's actually what's on the back of my brown coats jersey and on key rings and keychains and things. Um, how I got that nickname is a whole other story. Um, but it's short for Weeble. Okay. So I do wobble. I don't fall down, except sometimes. Um, where people would know me from would probably be, well, from Chupacabra Con, but also from going to Dragon Con, Gen Con, um, Owl Con, other cons around the world, and um, also from Iverse Media, which is sort of my day job where I work in comics. And um, let's see what else. Superpowers would be organization and complications would be <laughs> probably works too hard. 
you know, definitely a, a plus one for sleep deprivation. And, um, you know, a, a, another complication would be needs coffee. So um, that's about all I can think of for the moment. Will that do? That is an excellent gaming character sheet. I, I would just like to ask if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what ChupacabraCon is so they know this con that you represent. Absolutely. So we are a gaming convention in Austin, Texas. Woohoo! We are in our second year. And last year we had about 300 people. We're expecting 500 people this year. And what started out as just an idea of, hey, there's not a gaming convention in Austin has turned into something pretty spectacular because as it turns out, we have a board that is full of people with all kinds of amazing skills. And I myself have been a convention organizer um, locally, nationally, and internationally for 20 years. So um, we've got lots of great experience and knowledge and contacts with people in the gaming industry. And so we just invited people to come to Austin and talk about games and gaming and the stuff that they've worked on. And so far, it's been a great success. So if you're in the Austin area and you want to play some games or hear some great panels about how to make games, go to ChupacabraCon. Yes, and that is in January. All right. Thank you very much, Sheena. Uh, Mr. Joe Charles, can you tell us about who you are and where we might know you from in your gaming character sheet? Well, uh, player name, of course, would be Joe Charles. Uh, character name would probably be Brynjolf. That's B-R-Y-N-J-O-L-F. It's a name of a very old character that I've used for many years. Sounds like a Viking. Uh, yeah, yeah, a bit. A uh, bit of a war cleric, actually. <laughs> nice. So, um, yeah, I I also require caffeine. Um, <laughs> I, I, would, I would list among my hang-ups uh, CDO. Uh, you have to put it in its proper alphabetical order, of course. OCD is, is just not sufficient. <laughs> I, I really think in order to, to organize cons, you have to have a little bit of that bug in you. You have to have that attention to detail and, and need to organize things. Uh, otherwise, you just wouldn't be crazy enough to try this. It's too much work. Mm-hmm. Right now, I've got a little sleep deprivation going. Uh, a little bit of con crud creeping around the edges. Welcome to the club. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, just got back from Dragon Con. It was actually my first Dragon Con to attend, so that was a, a really fun event for me, and uh, got to see how they do things. People might also know me from Gen Con. I've actually been going there for about 16 years, very heavily involved in Kinzerco's Hackmaster Association back when they were doing mm-hmm. their older version of Hackmaster, the, the one that was based on the first and second edition AD&D. I did some... Uh, play testing and editing and demos for them at cons and other places helped to run some of their tournaments. Uh, actually, now, in that system, in that system, if you apply a, a torch to the groin, you do get a plus two bonus to interrogation rolls. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a great system. We had a lot of fun with it. I, I actually established the local chapter here in the Houston area, uh, which is how I came to meet uh, John Simons, who runs Comic Palooza for whom I'm working, uh, doing the gaming track now. So, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Comic Palooza and the gaming track specifically there? Sure. Comic Palooza, just to, to talk about the con for a moment, is what they like to call a multi-format convention. So more of a geek culture convention that has a little bit of everything. I mean, as, as you know, since you were there, we have everything from celebrities to roller derby, steampunk track, music events, 
and gaming is is one of those tracks. We have both uh, tabletop and video gaming, and I have actually been tasked this year with uh, taking on the video gaming aspect as well as just the tabletop. And I've been with them, I guess, two years working on this now, and we've we've experienced a good amount of growth, I think, in the last couple of years. And organization has really been my focus. I don't think we had a, a solid organization for our games uh, when I first came in. And so we're adding new things like our indie gaming alley that you saw this year. We try to bring in some independent game developers and publishers. And we're also reaching out to some of the larger companies and, and trying to get them to send in representatives and talk about their games and gaming and how people can get involved. Just trying to grow the track and, and turn it into a significant portion of the convention. That's awesome. Thank you very much, Joe. All right. Uh, Mr. Doolittle, can you tell us about uh, who you are and where we might know you from in terms of a gaming character sheet? Genghis Khan and Tacticon are the two conventions every year uh, run by, or I should say, owned by the Denver Gamers Association and run by them as well as a handful of volunteers like myself. I'm the RPG coordinator, and these cons are, I would call them old school gaming cons. There's a lot of role playing, tabletop board gaming, miniatures, battles and tournaments, and miniature figurine painting. There's also some train games going on at the con. But I say old school because you're not going to find panels and workshops and such, at least not in the current incarnation. There are some discussions going forward about enlarging the scope of the con in that way. And how long have you been uh, organizing the gaming track there? I just I just did the RPG coordination for Tacticon, which is my second con in this position. Genghis Khan, which was over President's Day weekend, uh, was my first con. And prior to that, I was merely a an attendee. Lots of role-playing, made a lot of contacts with people that run the con, and next thing you know, they tapped me when their previous RPG coordinator uh, retired. You know, what's interesting is all three of our guests here tonight have been doing this for two years or less, so it's all about, you know, fresh blood. <laughs> sure. It's, it, might be the, it might be the norm for the, uh, for the position. What do you guys think? Well, I know that when we formulated our board of directors, we're actually um, a nonprofit. We specifically said that we didn't want anybody to be in a particular position for more than three years for the sole reason that I imagine that we will get burned out. I mean, after doing professional conventions for so long, doing the same con day in, day out all the time in the same position can really wear on a person. And then you end up making mistakes and forgetting things. So, you know, we do plan to rotate out. So next year's ChupacabraCon will be my third year. And then I'll be stepping down as chair and taking over some other position or running away screaming. I, I don't know. Hopefully <laughs> not. But That's interesting. Do you think that encourages innovation? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you can get a new pair of eyes on something that you've been doing for a while, I think that's that's a positive thing. There's always new things to be learned, always new tricks and and ideas that can be incorporated. Okay. After we do our gaming character sheet, we always ask our guests uh, what you've been playing lately. And I would like to start with uh, Daryl because he's been very, very quiet. <laughs> Daryl, can you tell us what you've been playing lately? Well, last night we played another session of our Game Table Dungeons & Dragons episode. That's right. Um, it was a little bit on the short side due to uh, both the module and we were down two players. 
but it was still a lot of fun. I've got another session set up this weekend so I can catch up the two people who couldn't make it. Um, and I've also spent some time unboxing some of the loot I got from Gen Con, specifically uh, Munchkin Panic and uh, the Shadows Shadows of Brimstone from Flying Frog Games, which that is a beast of a game. There's a ton of minis in that one, and I'm not that good of a modeler, and it requires gluing arms on and stuff. So that's something we have to dedicate a whole day to putting together. Okay. But it looks like a blast. All right. Joe Charles, why don't you tell us what you've been playing lately? Well, my weekly game right now is actually Fantasy Flight's Edge of the Empire. One that you are familiar with, I know. Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, I, I picked up their new uh, class source book for the colonists at Gen Con this year. So I've been flipping through that. Just a quick aside, they just announced, Fantasy Flight just announced a new RPG, The End of the World, I believe is what it's called. Yeah, they yeah. just announced that one today as we're recording. Yeah, and it's got like four different ways to end the world from a zombie apocalypse to a machine revolt to an act of God, those kinds of things. <laughs> Excellent. That sounds fun. Yeah. Sounds jolly. Sorry, go ahead, Joe. You were saying Edge of the Empire, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, Ed- Edge of the Empire. That's our that's our weekly game. Uh, I also play 40K, I almost hate to admit. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I do play that on occasion, just as I find time. As far as uh, electronic games go, I, I dabble around in Dungeons & Dragons Online and a few iPad games. Uh, a friend of mine just got me hooked on Star Wars Commander, for which I curse him. So <laughs> I'm going to have to check that one out. <laughs> so that's uh, th- those are my current games at the moment. Alrighty, Thank you very much. Uh, Ed, what have you been playing lately? My current campaign is a weekly game run by Justin Suzuki. It's, it's uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. Uh, on the Cursed Island is the name of the campaign. And it's been a lot of fun, old school sword and sorcery, you know, fighting kobolds and owlbears, et cetera, et cetera, uh, where I play an, an elf whose class is elf. <laughs> <laughs> that is very old school. Yes. Gotta love the old school. And, and that answers my usual question, which is, are you an elf? So right away, you nailed that one. Good. <laughs> Anything else? I played some Savage Worlds at... Uh, at Tacticon last weekend, Labor Day weekend, and I often play Savage Worlds with my local friends and recently did play Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, and I think it's a blast. I've already invested some money in it, but I'm looking forward to uh, running my own campaign when I can put a group together. All right. How about Sheena Colbath? My gaming group is currently playing Conspiracy X every other Friday, where I play a FBI agent who has had a run-in with a gray alien and then been tapped by Aegis to run her own cell. And we're currently tracking down a spaceship in the middle of the Nevada desert. Oh, and by the way, that that lake that sort of just popped up in the middle of the desert, I think that might have been my group's fault because (laughs) literally three days before that happened, our group accidentally opened a um, subspace gate in the middle of the desert that went to an ocean on primordial earth and flooded the valley. So sorry about that. Life um, imitates art, I suppose. On the other weeks, we're doing um, Star Wars Edge of the Empire, which Ross knows. And so that's really fun. And I play an assassin. Not terribly far off base for what I enjoy playing in RPGs. And then in the computer worlds, really enjoying the latest 
um, patch for Diablo 3 and getting my Paragon levels like crazy and also playing some Hearthstone, which is super fun and addictive and just like playing Magic a little bit, except things are animated and pretty, which definitely appeals to the girly side of me. That's awesome. Uh, I will go now just to be very quick. Uh, Ross, what have you been playing? Well, I'm glad you asked. I have been uh, playing, of course, the game table with Daryl in terms of computer games. I just started playing uh, Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag and really enjoying that. Uh, I'm still playing Star Trek Online. Uh, really looking forward to the Delta Rising expansion coming up for that very, very soon. And I was at Tacticon just this last weekend and played a whole bunch of games. There's a couple of games that I played that were just sublime. I mean, they were the kind of role-playing game where you don't want it to end. You want to just keep playing that game forever. And I got to do that twice, which was amazing. Both times it was Savage Worlds. Uh, one time it was uh, Bill Keys doing his uh, Winding Gyre game. And one time it was with uh, Ed Doolittle. Help me out. His name's Ron... Riggenbach. Ron Riggenbach. Yep. And he ran a, a really awesome uh, Savage Worlds supers in steampunk game that we just no, did not ever want to end. That sounds like him. And then finally, I got to play Cyberpunk 2020 in a amazing, very dark game with a bunch of people who are very good friends of mine, including a Doolittle. Hus Honey Badger, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that was, uh, that was what we've been playing lately. The next up is what's called Tavern Tales. Now, usually what we do is we ask people to give us a very memorable die roll from a game they've played lately. But considering tonight's particular focus, I think what I'd like to do is amend it a little bit and say, can you give us a story of a memorable die roll at a gaming convention? And, well, let's start with Chena. Okay, so at Comic Palooza, I played several different games. I was in a Savage Worlds game. And what was happening? We were down to our last man, and I had the opportunity to take a sniper shot, and I I, I maxed it out. And um, that, that was really great to be able to end the scene on just taking out the bad guy, bullet to the head, done, and get our team out of there. So that was really fun. Nice. Nice. All right. Joe Charles. Well, you know, I'm going to go with recent event at this past Gen Con, I was playing in a Pathfinder game with some friends, and our group was progressing uh, into a cavern along a narrow walkway, uh, attempting to invade this uh, cobalt layer. And the walkway was treacherous, of course, it has to be, and you might slip and fall into the water there beside the pathway. And the check to move along was relatively easy. I want to say it was like a DC-5. But three of us, in a row, as we attempted to proceed down the walkway, rolled ones. No! no! <laughs> so that's very memorable just for the comedy value of, you know, all three people crashing into the water. Well, at least it was a lava. Yeah, yeah. It didn't get us <laughs> killed, but uh, it was interesting. All right. Uh, Ed Doolittle. I've got it. My most memorable die roll story from that event goes back years and years. This would have been early 90s in Southern California. I think it was, in fact, some sort of Star Trek convention, but they had a gaming room. I had a friend running the game, and it was it was DC Heroes. Was that what it was called, DC Heroes? Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to recall how dice explode in DC Heroes. I think you have to get double O on two ten-siders. Uh, regardless, though, 
uh, we had a character who was a speed freak, you know, sort of a uh, flash type of character. We were trying to defend Central Park against a pack of villains, and he exploded his dice several times over, resulting in a score so incredibly high that he blew up Central Park with the force <laughs> of his kinetic energy. Jesus Christ. A little collateral damage there, buddy. <laughs> right, yes. It was almost as bad as Superman, uh, almost about as late as Superman movie, but not quite. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we took out the villains, but the park did not survive. Well, he didn't stop to kiss the girl like a rock star amidst all the destruction and death, so right. maybe well, a little more heroic. <laughs> I'm sorry. You can tell I'm not a huge fan of Man of Steel, so I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you very much for the Tavern Tales, guys. That's awesome. Let's dive into our main topic tonight. So we have gaming conventions and organizing conventions. I think I'm going to wander off the reservation right from the beginning because I kind of want to ask a question that I think most of our listeners are going to want to know. If our if our listeners have not ever been to a gaming convention or a convention with a gaming track like uh, Comic Palooza is, what is the main attraction? What's the best things about a gaming con that draw people in? Games? Well, yes. <laughs> I'm looking for more than a one-word answer here. <laughs> just trying to get the obvious out of the way. Well, one of the things I really like is just the exposure to games that you haven't purchased and the ability to try games without purchasing. So I, I really enjoy getting exposure to new games, ones that maybe I haven't tried. Uh, maybe they're just coming out. Maybe they're old games that I just have, have never purchased. But... Uh, I, I like that broader perspective. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. I, I like that myself. Uh, anybody else? What are some things we like, you know, that draw people in for a gaming con? Well, not only getting to try new games, but also playing with different players and different GMs than your normal gaming group gives you a new perspective, can give you great new ideas for running your own games. Um, and just being able to meet people that have similar interests and enjoy gaming as well, but may approach it completely differently than your group does. That's an excellent point as well. I find uh, that people come to Genghis Khan and Tacticon partly to meet the, the uh, handful of gaming industry celebs, if we can call them, call uh, our special guest celebs, um, to, uh, to get some to get some meet and greet time with people that actually make these games that, that occupy so much of our imaginations. Like, I don't know, Ross Watson, for example. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can play Dungeon Crawl Classics with Harley Stroh, uh, who's one of the main designers, at Tacticon and Genghis Khan, and I always think that's a pretty awesome thing. And Daryl Hardy was there with uh, Ghost Punchers. Man, I, I wish I'd had a chance to play Ghost Punchers. Oh, we're going to try to get him to do that at the upcoming Thanksgiving plug insert here. This is this is a charity, uh, one-day charity gaming event we run in November in uh, North Denver in Broomfield. Okay. Yeah, we're going to try to have him run it there so you'll get a chance, Ross. All right. I'll look forward to it. But from an organizational standpoint, let's say you know, you're putting together a gaming con, which you all will be at some point. What, are the, what is the first things you always focus on, your highest priority bits for you know, bringing in new people and making sure everybody has a good time? Well, for me, I think it's being able to give them clear direction, clear understanding so that they don't show up on the premises going, where do I go? What do I do? How do I find my game? How do I register? You know, making sure that we're thinking about the gamer's experience from the moment they walk through the door until the moment that they leave. Okay, that's very good. 
Yeah, that's that's very true. And oftentimes your priority depends a bit on the convention uh, and you know what areas you feel need to be improved based on that experience that you want to present. Okay. Would you, you know, here's a good question I want to throw out there. A lot of gaming cons, when you go, uh, you, you, there's usually a ticket system of some kind where you buy a ticket and that's what gets you into the game. And, of course, there's almost always some open gaming areas as well. Can you guys talk to us a little bit about the usefulness of the pay tickets or the usefulness of the open gaming and why you decided to go with one or the other? I'll, I'll speak first because I think I have probably the shortest answer. Genghis Khan and Tacticon run on a ticket system. Although, in this particular uh, case last weekend, we didn't use paper tickets so much as the tickets were in the system. There were lists printed out and such. We were experimenting with a ticketless system, but it is still ticketed gaming. You register in advance. If you get to the event and you don't have a, a particular ticket in mind, you can buy a generic, and then you can just select a game based on what has openings. That gives you some advantage. In the Socially speaking, you can meet people and try to find a game that inspires you like right at that moment. But ticketed gaming allows us to understand how much space requirements there are and to try to generate a a good mix of available games uh, at any given session. Do do you think it's a good idea to also set aside some space for open gaming as well? I Personally, it's something I'd like to try, but uh, the system at uh, Genghis Khan and Tacticon hasn't been set up for it in the past, but I think there's room for it. Okay. What about Sheena and Joe? You got any comments on uh, tickets or open gaming? Well, we uh, at Comic Palooza, we actually don't have tickets per se, but we do have pre-registration for games, and we encourage our our GMs to plan their time so that we can advertise those games and allow people to sign up for them uh, for reasons that Ed mentioned. We also have open gaming just because we have a plethora of space at the George R. Brown. So we have extra space available if people want to come in and you know start their own game. Or we had a local game store come in and run a board game library for us this year uh, so people could check out games and just play with whoever happened to be there. Uh, so, so we do a little bit of, of both. I'm trying for the moment to stay away from any sort of paid ticketing because I don't think that would be very well received, and and we don't specifically have a need for it at this time. But, you know, I understand other conventions like Gen Con, obviously, Dragon Con as well, they charge a very trivial amount for a game ticket, and that usually goes towards prize support and that sort of thing. It does. If I might jump in here just briefly, uh, you know, having gone to all three of your conventions and having been to many others, as both a GM and a player, I, as a GM, I love the idea of tickets. I love the idea of, or pre-registration, really. But any any indication of an organization side where I can, you know, tell you I have six spots and you can fill all six of those spots, and then there's not like overflow and there's not people wandering around. I think that's always a really good idea. It's it's good organizationally to have a kind of a ticket system in place. I, um, but also, go ahead. I was going to say I like it because it allows me, as a player, when I'm an attendee, it allows me to plan my events and know where I'm going to be. And yes. to actually fill my time and have something to do. Yeah, absolutely. For for scheduling, it's also really, really super good. Um, however, I also like to kind of walk around and just sort of see what's open and see if there's openings available for things. Um, but I think that's that's also a strength of the ticket system where somebody can say, well, 
we had five people sign up and only four are here. So absolutely, as long as the ticketed guy doesn't show up, you can join us. Right? Yeah, and that's basically how we handle it. If you're pre-registered and you show up, you'll be given priority. But if you don't show up by the time the game starts, then the GM can fill in with anyone else that has shown up and has an interest. Absolutely. Now, the other thing I'm, I want to highlight, actually, uh, at Doolittle's cons, the Tacticon and Genghis Con, because they do some really interesting things to uh, with ticketing, I think, to, that kind of actually adds to the experience. First of all, I always remember if I'm GMing at a game where people paid money to be there, that I have to bring, you know, my A game. I can't just show up with whatever that day, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> those people pay good money to be at my table. I really, you know, owe them a good experience. And uh, Ed and the guys at Tacticon and Gangscon take it a step further. They actually issue uh, little report cards that people fill out after your game is over. And they, they grade you on, a, I think, five or six different areas from a one to ten score. And then after the con, at the end of the at the end of the con, they have a uh, a little you know after party or uh, closing ceremony kind of thing, where the guys with the top scores all get, basically get prizes. Which That's is nice. A, yeah. It's a really great way to incentivize strong, energetic, you know, dedicated GMs who are not just running whatever they feel like. And I, I feel it's really shown uh, some great results in Genghis Khan and Tacticon with the overall quality of the games that you find there are just, just very, very high. Yeah, there's, there's always going to be people who are motivated really well by... It is not the fact that they could pick up a copy of the latest uh, Dungeons & Dragons player's handbook as a prize or some game system that is less well-known that, they, that they're excited because they've never seen it before, which is certainly the sort of thing they do. But I think they're really motivated by being in front of their peers and being called out for um, having run exceptional games. Uh, I want to move us a little more towards an award sort of thing and less of a prize sort of thing. But I think it'll always be a hybrid. Well, that's fine. I, I, I just remember, you know, seeing guys and, and thinking to myself, wow, because they go up there and they're recognized for getting all tens in like eight or nine games run over the weekend, which is an awful lot of games to run back to back. Uh, and to be able to bring that kind of energy and passion to all nine of those games, that's a that's a heck of a GM right there. We have some fantastic GMs. I'm sure everyone does, but we sure do. Okay, well, you know, on that note, do you guys, I mean, I don't know if, if you guys have any experience with this, but I bet Joe actually does. Tournaments. Have you guys got experience with tournaments at gaming conventions? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> actually, when I was doing Hackmaster, I helped to GM their tournaments at Gen Con for a couple of years. And, of course, we also ran tournaments here locally at, at like Alcon and some of the other conventions. So I have had some experience with it. Uh, was there something particular you were wanting to highlight? Well, it is a definitely a case of an organized, like I, you know, maybe not, maybe I didn't pay for a ticket to be there, but I have a, uh, I have an incentive to do my best in a tournament. Absolutely. Right? And, and as you say, sometimes that's best in a, in a good way and sometimes it's best in a bad way. Yeah. Well, speaking as a, as a tournament organizer rather than as a, a con organizer, I know one of the frustrations I always had is that you don't always have a number of people volunteering to GM that meet the quality requirement that you would like. So sometimes it becomes difficult to come up with enough GMs or what you consider quality GMs to run the tables that you have. So that that's always a real challenge. And it, it's you don't ever want somebody to feel disenfranchised or not come back because of a bad experience. 
but by the same token, you only have so many GMs to work with. Well, that that's a great point. Why don't we expand this question a little bit from tournaments and just ask, like, how do you find good GMs? As you're a gaming organizer, right? All of you are, and you want you want to have good GMs to run your games. Where where do you find these guys? Well, for groups like uh, Pathfinder Society, they kind of take care of themselves in a lot of ways because they have their own ranking systems for their GMs and, and various levels and ratings. And so you can rely on, on those guys usually to bring in some, some good GMs for their events. In terms of other GMs, you really rely a lot on feedback. And I've never done anything quite as formal as, as you were talking about with Ed, although at it's a great idea. I'd like to try that because I'm essentially relying on feedback from people to tell me, you know, was did this person do a good job? Because if they didn't, I don't necessarily want to let them run more games until they improve. Right. Well, and, and you make a good point about, you know, contacting local organizations. I mean, in Denver, we have the Rocky Mountain Savages, which is the Savage Worlds organization here. And those guys have a really wide network of good GMs, although I don't think they're nearly as organized as uh, Pathfinder Society. And I think there's Shadowrun Missions as well, right? We don't have a Shadowrun Missions presence at Denver at Denver Towns, but perhaps yours. I, I meant in general. I think you're right. The partnering with other organizations like Pathfinder Society, Rocky Mountain Savages. We have another. We have another group here that ran some serial pulp adventures for a couple of cons uh, in an organized way. Partnering with groups like that allows you to really improve the quality of of the games because they're self. They're self-policing. And we've only had, I think, as far as I know, in the past decade of Denver games, Denver cons, we've only had a couple of game masters not invited back. It's a tight-knit community, and people know which GMs they want to role-play with. So it sort of self-selects because the best GMs, their tables fill first. Yeah, that's a good, good point. What do you think, Sheena? Yeah, I concur with that. I mean, our, our GMs are generally word of mouth. So it's people who know people who know people who have GMs with somebody or who have gamed with somebody who was a good GM. And so, you know, we'll send them a personal invitation to come and run a game with us. But we also have open registration. So if somebody's brand new or just moved here or wants to come in from out of town, we'll certainly give them a chance. And then, you know, if we receive any negative feedback, then we'll hold on to that and, you know, see what we need to do about it later. Well, you also make a good point that, you know, you shouldn't have to be an established GM to run a game at a gaming con, right? I mean, that's kind of one of the points of gaming cons is a good place to get experience as a new GM. I think it can be, for sure. I I would hope that, you know, if somebody agrees to come and, and run a game, that they're at least going to be confident about what they're doing, even if they're relatively new at doing it. Right. Well, I mean, that's one thing that's, that's useful when you do the game listing, right? And the... Uh, either on the website or on the, uh, the program book, you can tell people like this is, you know, for new players or this is going to be a relatively rules light game or things of that nature. You can, you can find a way if you're the GM to sort of communicate that to your players saying, uh, I haven't really done this a lot before. So. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's in our description. Uh, we use Warhorn for our game planning and registration. And so we're able to actually input, you know, very specific summary for each game electronically ahead of time so people can select their games. Now, what is Warhorn for the listeners? Uh, Warhorn is a free website that allows gaming conventions to essentially use kind of like a, a content management system online so that they can set up scenarios, they can set up locations, they can set up rooms, they can set up times. 
Um, and then people go there to actually register as GMs, as volunteers, and for the convention. And then they have a great little tie-in to PayPal, so you can do everything right there, you know, pay for your ticket and everything online. You can also set different levels. So, like, we have, if you're a special guest, then you're obviously going to sign in for free. Or if you're a volunteer, you sign in for free. If you sign up before a certain date, then you get a reduced rate, that kind of thing. And you can also do coupon codes. So if we run an advertisement in another cons book, we might do a coupon code for 5% off or something like that. So it's it's a nice little tool. That is nice. What I think is really interesting is like listening to all three of you guys talk, it seems like you all have a different way of approaching running a gaming track, but it also sounds like you all have like some really good ideas. Uh, I think that's really exciting. You know, for full disclosure, I think it's important to note that I've been to all three of these cons. I've actually been to all three of these cons as a guest. Daryl and I went to Comic Palooza as guests, and uh, I think I'm already scheduled to go to ChupacabraCon next year as a guest. So, yay! <laughs> uh, you know, it, I picked these people mostly because I knew you know knew them very well, and I knew they had some great things to say about the con. But it's just important for the listeners to know that I didn't. You know, it's not that I, I don't have a, a vested interest in, in talking about their con, but uh, if you want to come check out a really really good con, these are all cons that I think I've enjoyed uh, very greatly. And every single person I've heard talk about Tacticon or Chupacabacon has been just glowing about how awesome it is to go to. Uh, same thing for Chupacabacon. I've heard a lot of stories about that. And uh, this past Comic Palooza was my second Comic Palooza. So, and I, I was technically not a guest. I was press. Well, all right. Slight, slightly different. It is slightly I just, different. I'm, I'm still paying a crap load of money out of pocket to go to these cons. So. <laughs> So now, let's see, we've got some GMs, right? And we've got tickets, and we've got organization, and we've got an open gaming space. As organizers, how do you make sure that there's enough room for individual games to play? I mean, what's your paradigm for sort of the, the physical setup on running games? It's funny you should hit on a topic that your guest doesn't want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's funny you should ask, because... My, my ideal situation would be that I know the space that I have and I can basically assign games as they come in to a given location. But in practice for the last couple of years, that has not been true uh, due to the way venues work. Sometimes we don't know the space that we have until relatively last minute. So we know we have a lot of space, so we take pretty much all the games that we get and we find a way to fit them in. But uh, if we had more limited space, it would be very difficult. Uh, this year, however, I think I actually will have my space dedicated ahead of time, and I can do it the way I would prefer. Well, I can say that for Chupa, you know, we book the venue a year in advance, at least. And, you know, we work with the team at our location to get diagrams to scale. And then I will sit there in Photoshop or whatever and move tables around until it looks the way that I want it to look. And, you know, we try to get a minimum of a 10 top so that people have enough room to play. And then also the GM can take up like three seats if they need to. We have enough room to put out a hex map or whatever we need. I think the only drawback that we're having from our perspective is that when we're using large rooms, the noise level sometimes gets to be a problem. And I really envy OwlCon that they have a university campus to work on because then they have all these great tiny rooms where they'll have just one game or maybe two games. 
And that's fantastic because then you really get a sense of the people that you're playing with. You can really hear them and um, it's just a little more intimate. So years going forward, um, I think we're probably going to look at, at trying to divide our space a little bit better. This year will be better than last year. We have like five or six rooms, I think, this year instead of a couple of giant rooms. So that's that's definitely an improvement. Yeah, you know, we, we get down to the nitty gritty as far as like size of the table and exactly where it's going to be. You know, my experience with that has been that there's kind of pros and cons to both approaches. Like if you have that big open area, it does get loud. But at the same time, you can sort of pick up on the energy around you and, and definitely you know, can uh, sort of look at other tables and be like, wow, check those guys out. They're having a good time, right? That's true. That's true. And, and in those little rooms, it can be great for hearing things and, and being very intimate, as you say, but it can also be really hot <laughs> and, you know, uh, air conditioning, maybe the circulation isn't so great for various odors or whatnot. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll speak to that briefly. At, uh, at Genghis Khan and Tacticon, we, um, we've been in the same hotel for a few years now, and the hotel has gone through a remodel, and much of our gaming space was lost. <gasps> and they've been moving, uh, they've been keeping us equipped with space by giving us room in an office building across the parking lot, which yeah. gives us the advantage of all these fantastic little rooms for more intimate games that are all located adjacent to each other. So you still have central locations for games. Um, but on the downside, these buildings really aren't designed to have eight people in a room together in each of these small rooms. The ventilation really isn't made to cope with it. So it, it's got its pluses and minuses. I think everyone enjoys the game quite a bit, but you go through a lot of ice water. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Joe, you've got like tons of space at the convention center there in Houston. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We've had mixed feedback on putting games off into separate smaller rooms. Personally, I prefer it because I, I like being able to hear. And as a GM, I like not being hoarse from having to talk very loudly the entire weekend. But I've also gotten feedback from some groups that say they feel very disenfranchised, like they're being pushed off to the side and not really part of the main convention when we put them off in those rooms. So it's interesting to see the the differences in opinion. So we tend to compromise a little bit, and we have one large uh, gaming space that we tend to put most of our games in unless somebody requests a smaller space, and then we'll fit them into one of the smaller rooms. You know, that's a really great point. And actually, uh, that's one of the things that this this actual podcast right here can be useful for. If any of the listeners have any feedback for any convention organizers that we have with us tonight about small rooms or big rooms, about the things you would prefer to do, you know, don't hesitate to drop us a line on email or on iTunes as a review or, or just give us, you know, uh, Daryl, some other ways they can get in contact with us. Uh, they can also post on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gamers tavern. Uh, you can also tweet us at Gamers Tavern PC as in podcast. You can also email info at gamerstavern.org as well. And if you're wanting to give feedback directly to your local convention, go to their website. They usually have some sort of contact or information email link or form that you can submit through the website. Yeah, I think it's fair to say all three of our guests here are actually really excited to hear from gamers uh, who want to attend their shows and they want to hear what you have to say. I mean, isn't that right? Absolutely. Uh, we actually yes. put up an electronic survey form this year for our gamers. It's it's come down recently, but it was there for a good month after the con. We get a lot of great feedback on our Facebook page, Denver Gamers. 
that that's a good venue for it. It's you know it's somewhat public to other members, to other people who like the page. At the same time, you don't have to blast the world with your, your points and questions. <laughs> well, I just want to emphasize it's really really important for gamers to give feedback to the con organizers because that's the only way they're going to really know what they need to do, right? I mean, they all want to make a better con. They want the con to get better, better and bigger, and have a better experience every time. And one of the ways to do that is for if you go to a con, if you're a gamer or a GM, you know, take some time and and fill out that form or or just stop one of the organizers or, uh, you know, send an email or something afterwards and and let them know what you think. Because uh, it it sounds like all of our guests are in total agreement that that is, you know, one of the best ways they can uh, find out what you guys think and what you guys want to see when you go to a gaming con. Absolutely. Yep. Speaking of seeing things at a gaming con. Do you guys want to talk at all about exhibitors or guests? I mean, these are the things that, you know, are really not actual games, but they do bring gamers uh, to your con. Isn't that right? They do. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about organizing your exhibitors or organizing, you know, your guests and things of that nature? Well, at ChupacabraCon, we have a guest coordinator uh, whose only job it is is to wrangle the guests. And so he stays in contact with them. He makes sure that they're on all of the right lists, that their schedule is up to date. And he then kind of talks with them in a roundtable type situation to come up with what the panels are going to be and asks them, you know, which ones they want to sit on. And, um, you know, just make sure that their travel arrangements are all scheduled and set and that they know what time to be where and all that good stuff. As far as attracting them, we just said, please come. And they just did. So, um, yeah. Did you target your questioning at all? Did you like to say, we want to pick this guy because? Yeah, to a certain degree. Um, and there were some particular gaming systems that we were very excited about or people that just knew the creator of a particular gamer system that we knew already was either in Austin or surrounding area or had an interest in coming here for another reason. Like Green Ronin Publications, for example, has a lot of people who at one time were in Austin. Um, a lot of them have moved to the Pacific Northwest now, but for them to come here was kind of like a mini Green Ronin reunion for people who work together but don't get to see each other very often. Yeah, that was Chris Premis and Steve Kenson, I believe. Yes, and Donna Pryor as well. That's right. And so that was a really fun experience for them. They they were interested in Austin anyway. So having an excuse to come here professionally was just an extra added bonus. Anybody else want to talk about uh, attracting guests or particular exhibitors? Well, we, we basically do the same thing. We just ask and, and see who says yes. <laughs> you know, whoever Whoever's willing to come. As far as, as targeting specific guests, we just try to rotate uh, a little so that we don't have the same people every time, obviously, but we actually have to handle ours a little bit separately. We have a guest coordinator for the con, but we have so many uh, film and television personalities that are coming in, they really get swamped with that. So we actually have someone on our, our gaming staff that helps to make sure that the travel arrangements for our gaming guests are set up and handled, because sometimes if we don't, things can slip through the cracks. But that person then also acts as moderator at the at the events. You remember Jason? Yes, Jason Yarnell, a friend of the show and former guest, actually. Yes, so uh, and he did a great job, and as far as I know, that was able to fulfill the needs that you guys had. Oh, absolutely, no question about it. He was awesome. We we recorded a show 
at SuperCarbicon, and then we talked about it afterwards, didn't we, Daryl? Uh, Comic Palooza. Yes. You mean. Did I did I say something wrong? Did I say a different one? You said you said SuperCarbicon. Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I have unfortunately not gotten to attend that yet. Basically. I moved away from Austin and spent the entire six years I lived there lamenting there was no gaming convention. The second I moved back to Orange, Chupacabacon shows up. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I met, I met Comic Palooza. We recorded a show at Comic Palooza, and then we talked about it afterwards. Yes. And uh, you can actually find that on our archive page. Uh, just search for Comic Palooza. And I think we had uh, William Thrasher was one of our guests. Yes, he was. Yeah, William actually and uh, Michael Varhola are are staples at Comic Palooza just because they help out with the convention. So And the party. And they run the best freaking room party of all time. That they do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you've got your guests. Do you guys want to talk at all about exhibitors? I assume that's probably almost a separate thing from the gaming track, but I imagine as a gaming coordinator, you, you have some input into the exhibitors and things that are shown, right? Like if a new game's going to come out or if there's you know, some local game stores that have a good presence, that kind of a thing? Yeah, I actually, I'll go out of my way to try to get local game stores involved. And I've had a lot of the larger game companies tell me that they would actually prefer to have the local game stores handle sales versus them having to bring in a large booth. So in terms of getting in actual game companies or publishers, we usually find that it works better for us to focus on smaller independent groups that are in the local area that want some additional exposure. And we actually have, just as of last year, set up a small area up near our our gaming hall because the convention is so large. We've gotten a lot of feedback from the exhibitors uh, telling us that they didn't, from our gaming exhibitors specifically, telling us they didn't want to exhibit down in the dealer hall or in the artist alley because they just get lost in the noise. We have so many other things going on and allowing them to come up closer to the game hall lets them target their audience a little bit better. Oh, yeah, that was something Daryl and I talked about at length, was the Comic Palooza Independent Game Alley, basically, which was right outside the gaming area. So when you go in and out to play games, you would be walking by these small independent companies that were exhibiting and demoing their games. Um, Not only that, it was right in front of the big exhibit halls where all the big yes. uh, big name TV and movie celebrities were doing their Q&A. So they got great exposure to potential gamers as well as existing gamers. Yep. That, that was very successful for us, and we're going to try to expand on that this year. Awesome. Ed, do you have any kind of feedback about getting uh, exhibitors in for a show? Well, I wish I had something fascinating to say, but other than the fact that occasionally our exhibitors are game designers who are willing to run uh, special events for me, Beyond that, I'm not really involved too much in the exhibitor hall, but we have people like Kevin Rohan from Silver Griffin Games who came in. He was available for 11, 11 sessions. I think seven of them went off, which I was thrilled with. Yeah, yeah. Silver Griffin Games is a local Denver game company that does uh, various products for Pathfinder, basically, that he's doing stuff for. Or is it a. Silver Griffin's out of, um, out of Iowa, I believe. Really? Iowa? Wow, that was a long trip then to come down here. <laughs> Yeah, he, he and his um, his assistant drove. I think he said seven hundred miles. Wow! To run the game, but they run a, they they have their own system, the Aether Universal System, which right. Kevin wrote, and he also he also writes what's the word for it? mods of his games for Savage Worlds. Right. So, well, of course, Savage Worlds is huge out here in, in uh, Denver. So, let's say we've got our exhibitors, and we've got our guests, and we've set everybody up. Do you have like a gaming library? Like say somebody wants to play a game, but they don't actually have anything. How do you set up like people to have 
opportunities to play something if they didn't bring, I don't know, dice or a GM screen or something of that nature? Well, for Champa, we have an open gaming area that has a board game library that's run by a local game store. So they'll be, you know, loaning out games, taking a driver's license kind of thing. And then we also just have kind of off to the side, here's some dice if you forgot yours, you know, check it out, bring <laughs> it back. Um, you know, we don't care if, if you steal it. Well, you know, that's on you. If you steal it accidentally, no big deal because it's just, you know, cheapest plastic dice we can find. Um, and that's not a problem. So um, as far as GM screens go, I don't think I've ever had anybody say they forgot theirs. Um, I have seen some people bring, like, prop up books to use yeah, as a GM screen. But, yeah, that's um, Yeah. We do something very similar. Uh, we have a local store that comes in and brings in a very large quantity of board games, the same, you know, hand us your driver's license sort of a thing. And then for dice, I just I have a large bucket of dice that I, I bought from Gen Con's bucket of dice bin years ago that I just kind of <laughs> set out and let people use. Since we don't have an open role-playing area, it's, it's not really a question for role-playing games, but our board game's similar. There's a small library of board games from people to, uh, to take to a table and whatnot and try out at the con. As for role-playing, I mean, people do run pickup games, um, in which case they brought their own thing. Okay. I like this idea, though. I think I might steal uh, what Sheena's doing there at ChicopaCon and make some things available. Cool. Well, hey, I'm glad we can set up, you know, some thing where ideas get kind of spread around, you know. It sounds like everybody's got some really good thoughts on how to do a convention. And with that in mind, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back. We're going to take a quick break here so I can tell you about Audible. There's just so many books out there, it's kind of hard to find time to read them all these days. But... You listen to podcasts, so you're used to listening to people talk while you do other things. You can go now and pick up Patrick Rothfuss's new book, The Slow Regard of Silent Things, and see the world through the eyes of Ari. Or you can go back a little bit further with one of the best examples of a fantasy rogue that I've ever read, The Lies of Locke Lamore by Scott Lynch. Or you can go back to a cyberpunk classic with Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. How do you do it? Just go to audibletrial.com slash Gamers Tavern, and not only do you get a free trial of the largest collection of audiobooks on the internet, you'll also get one book to keep. You can cancel at any time and keep the book if you don't like it, but trust me, you will. Your Platinum subscription will get you credits for free books every month and discounts on every other purchase. So go to audibletrial.com slash Gamers Tavern and catch up on the books you've been missing. And we're back with episode 43 of the Gamers Tavern, and we're talking about convention organization, and I still am completely stuffed up from this con crud, so please forgive my voice. Ed, Ed, you were going to talk to us a little bit about running games for kids at conventions. Is that right? Yes, we've got a really active con junior event, uh, which we run every con, and we've got some local people that really devote themselves to it for months of planning before the event. It's Friday through Sunday. The kids go, and it's it's not a daycare. It's it's role-playing games, and it runs 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. each day. The kids have role-playing games. They have board games. They're encouraged to learn to run role-playing games for each other. And what, we like, what we're trying to do is develop the next generation of role-players. Absolutely. And, you know, this is part of, you know, having that organization for a game con because people, you know, they have kids 
And sometimes those kids are too young for, you know, a typical role-playing game. So having uh, an opportunity there for them to do things is, is great. Uh, what about uh, Sheena or Joe? Do you guys have any programs for non-gamers or for kids at either of your uh, conventions? Not specifically, although we did target some events at kids last year. Um, we had a Pokemon tournament and a Magic tournament that was specifically advertised to the the youth groups here in Austin that that play those games at our local game stores. Um, and those were fairly well attended. But I would certainly like to do more to develop things for our younger players and so that parents can feel good bringing their kids there and that they'll have something to do if they want to go off and and play a game and not have to worry. We also have some things that are targeted at uh, younger players. Uh, We're actually trying to provide more content in terms of games for younger people. Uh, some of the games that have been donated, if they're in the appropriate ra- age range, I then provide to the children's track, because we do have a children's track. And I'm trying to get more games incorporated in that, but we haven't quite gotten to the point of providing role-playing games yet. You know, I saw something this year at uh, Myths and Legends Con, which is this little bitty con here in Denver. And they had a really interesting uh, thing set aside for families that I, I took special note of. They had a Lego build and bash in one of their rooms where they just had a whole bunch of Legos spilled out on the tables. And it was a great thing for kids and parents who, you know, were, were chaperoning the kids to come in and spend a little time just sort of building cars or spaceships or whatever. And, you know, it, it was supervised and I'm not sure if there was any kind of prizes or anything involved, but the kids were all into it. I mean, it was just amazing. That sounds like fun. I could spend my day doing that. Let's say we've talked about all, well, we have, we have talked about all the things that, are really the, the best parts of being at a gaming con. We've talked about the guests and the exhibitors, and we talked about playing in great games and tournaments and having libraries and enough room and things of that nature. Let's kind of segue into, I think, I want to say, like, the, the part of your jobs as convention organizers where you have to put out some fires, the, uh, the troubleshooting part. Can any of you guys speak to us about what are probably the most common or maybe most exciting fires to put out during a... Uh, a, a gaming convention. I find that the the ones that come up the most often are the mo- uh, most often are the most mundane. Air conditioning problems, problems with water supply, the the ice water not being stopped uh, in a timely fashion. Or I'm sure the other, I'm sure everybody can relate to this. There's not a table where there's supposed to be a table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, a pack of players with no place to play. Or the very rare. There's not a GM at the table, which. That one is frustrating to me. Uncommon but painful. Yes. What's your usual solution to that one? Depends Go. on whether or not you have another GM available that can actually <laughs> run that system. If you don't, a lot of times you just end up telling them, I'm sorry, he's, he's not here. It's time to find uh, some options for them, game-wise. Yeah. There's some great games you can play. Yeah, exactly. You find something else for them to play in, but and you make sure you remember that GM's name and have some words later. <laughs> That reminds me, I've got some work to do. So, have you guys ever had to do some, you know, last-minute demands or issues with the hotel? Uh, I mean, we all are aware of what happened uh, fairly recently with uh, a convention that was based around Tumblr. Oh, oh yeah, mm-hmm. that thing. Mm-hmm. With the ball pit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Several people cosplaying as the ball pit at Dragon Con. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. I think there was one at Gen Con. 
that I saw. Have you guys ever had any issues that have come up between you and the hotel, like at the last minute or at an awkward moment? I did have one with internet connectivity. We had originally, you know, stated in the program and on the everything, hey, there's not going to be internet available because it was going to cost us $150 a day. Um, to have it everywhere in the, the game room. And we had said to our vendors who were kind of in a separate area, you know, you guys can have it, but you have to pay for it. And, you know, people showed up and of course people don't read. They, they just don't. They don't read. And they're like, but I need to get online to get my character sheet and I need to get online to do whatever. And so we just plunked down the money and just told the hotel, hook them all up for free. And any of our vendors who had paid in advance for that internet fee got it refunded. And, you know, it was a financial hit for us, but it made everybody happy and, you know, free Wi-Fi for everyone. And we just took note of it and said, okay, well, next year when we select our venue, we'll make sure that we bake in the cost of the internet or that it is free. Uh, I, for one, was a really big fan of having the free internet. Thank you very much, Sheena. <laughs> Ross, I, I don't know if I don't know if you frequented the bar over Tachicon weekend. I did. But the hotel we're in just finished a remodel, as I mentioned earlier. They opened their brand new bar probably a month ago. And we were all surprised as we enjoyed a pint Thursday night to find out that they close at 11 every night. Dope. Mm. Our game sessions run till 11. That's right. Fortunately, our uh, the board president had words with the GM of the hotel. And by Friday night, that was resolved. And by Saturday night, we had a really engaged bar staff running trivia and uh, challenges and such with, with the assembled attendees, and we had a great time. That I noticed they had a special con menu, actually, there as well. Well, that's right. The, the banquet services provided gamer-themed uh, menu items throughout, you know, throughout lunch and dinner. It was, uh, they started doing that last year, and it's really entertaining. I forget the names of the foods, though. I totally didn't eat anything at the hotel. <laughs> Uh, what about you, Joe? Have you got any stories about, you know, uh, last minute or uh, fires that needed to come up and need to put out? Yeah, I don't generally have to deal with the hotel as much. I know you remember an issue that we had to deal with, but uh, <laughs> that's u- fairly unusual for me. Usually our guest relations people take care of the hotel portion of it. I wish I could get cheap internet for everybody in the gaming hall, but George R. Brown is very expensive with their internet connections to the point that even as a staff member, they were paying $150 just for me to have one single IP. Wow. So, yeah, to actually get it for everybody in the building, you would be talking about thousands of dollars. It's ridiculously expensive. And they did have, they do have Wi-Fi at the George R. R. Brown, but you do have to pay for it. I think it's like yeah. 10 or $15 a day yeah, or something like person, that. that's per person, right? Yeah. So no, it's not per person. That's per device. Yeah, yeah. So well, I'm assuming most people wouldn't hook up more than one device just because of the fee associated. But you're right; it is per device, and uh, so that that's been an issue. And and to combat that, you know, some of my GMs, you know, absolutely have to have internet connectivity. So I've actually been to the point where I'll bring in my own MiFi device occasionally, and and just give it to the very few people that I know need to use it and uh, try to accommodate them that way. But as far as last-minute issues, of course, we book the George R. Brown in advance. We know we're going to get space there. But 
we're just now hitting a size where we can actually start to say, you need to give us the entire convention center every year. We just had 32,000 some odd people this past year as a wow. unique attendance number. So up until then, even this past year, there was a case where I came in and I was supposed to have certain sections available for gaming. And they, there's actually two groups at the George R. Brown. And the one group couldn't set it up for me. And the other group runs a very small number of people. So they didn't have the manpower to set things up. So it's basically, guess what? You can't get your gaming space potentially until the morning of your first game. And you're going to need to set it up yourself. Things like that can really test your nerves because then you've got to scramble to get people in there to help you set things up. Unfortunately, we were able to do it the night before, but it seems like every year there's there's something like that. We'll have negotiated for space, and at the last minute, the venue will say, oh, no, no, we didn't agree to give you this particular bit of space or something. Something always happens. It's it's frustrating, but you know the best you can do is just work with what you have. Well, at least it wasn't a ball pit situation. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that. I mean, we always have space. As you know, there's a ton of space at the GRB. Even when we don't get all of it, we still have at least, well, the, the whole right. thing's like 1.2 million square feet. So we've always had at least 800,000 of that. There's a, you can do a lot with that much space. But it's frustrating when they change the specifics at the last minute. Now, I want to ask you guys a question about this, this troubleshooting and dealing with problems. And I think I already know the answer, but I, I want to hear what you guys have to say about it. It seems to me that you're probably your biggest gun in your arsenal to deal with issues or problems or to have anything get fixed that needs to be fixed are the volunteers and the con staff. Is that correct? Volunteers and the con staff are definitely very helpful in getting things fixed. It depends on the nature of the problem. I, you know, Some of the people I've worked with at the GRB itself have been very, very helpful in getting some of those space issues resolved. So... Absolutely. The volunteers and the con staff, you know, are the heart of what make things work. And I found that, you know, being the chair of the convention, I didn't have a particular job all weekend, but I was busy every moment. Just making a decision or trying to, you know, let somebody else know how to handle something and then letting them handle it. So, you know, definitely having some flexibility and great volunteers makes everything run smoother. Absolutely. Our staff is almost entirely made up of volunteers. And, and since the board of the DGA is, is unpaid, they're essentially volunteers as well. Volunteers do everything at our con. And on a micro level, I had an assistant uh, RPG coordinator assisting me. Just for, just for reference, the size of my con, we had RPGs had about 65 tables at any given time during the weekend. I leaned heavily on my assistant and he was a great kid. Uh, completely volunteer, and he put out everything he had into it. So this is where I say, you know, as as someone who's actually uh, done my own convention at one point in the past, if you are a guy who goes to gaming conventions, or if you have been thinking about going to a gaming convention, and, and you find that you really like it, you find that there's you know stuff they do that you really want to support and, and make more awesome, sign up as a volunteer. Give it a shot. Try it out. Uh, there's usually you know some kind of cool reward, like you get to go to an after party, or you get you know, maybe you get some tickets, you know, for, for special games for free or something like that. But it's not about what you get out of it materialistically. Volunteering at a con is a great way to just be part of that con experience. And it's a great way to, you know, kind of show your love for what that con is all about. Absolutely. Once again, I think these guys, they love feedback. And I bet you they also love and adore 
people to come up and say, I would like to help out next year. Absolutely. Yes. We will put you to work. <laughs> but it's but it's rewarding work, maybe in the non-materialistic sense. It's very rewarding work. So that's something I want to kind of segue into. Um, for those listeners who don't know, I actually uh, organized a con for about 50 to 80 people uh, back in Maryland several years ago, back in the early 2000s. And it was a lot of fun and it was a lot of work, but it was also a lot of fun. You know, there were things that I did not know back then. And I'm sure that maybe some of our listeners are thinking, you know, hey, I've got a lot of gamers in my area. Uh, how, if you were to tell a listener, you know, what are, is the best way to, you know, organize their own gaming con, maybe at a micro level, where would you start? I'll tell you what I would do because some of my friends and I are, you know, we run a charity event twice a year, which is a one day uh, game event. And what we did was partner with a local game store that already had table space that already had a relationship with their community. And we asked them to be sponsors of our event and, and allow us to host it there. And in no time at all, when basically the very first time we ran it, we had, I think, 22 games run throughout the day and raised close to $1,000 for charity. It was We felt it was extremely successful, although we've doubled it in size since then. It's an ex- That's an extremely low-cost way to go about it. If you're not interested in running raising money for charity, you can make that a really inexpensive event for everybody. As a matter of fact, when I ran my own con, I did it uh, by going to Games and Stuff, which is a game store in Glen Burnie, Maryland, and working with the owner there, uh, who's also named Ed. We came up with the space and the sponsorship, and it, it worked out really great for uh, for everybody involved. So, yeah, absolutely, that's good advice. I think having a core team of people that are really dedicated to seeing it through, you know, making sure that you've got you know people that you know and trust who are going to show up to meetings, who are going to follow through on what they say they're going to do. And there's nothing wrong with having, you know, some flaky McFlakersons around who are going to do nothing but, you know, talk about the con and and promote it. But when it comes down to the hard work, you know, where the rubber meets the road, you need some people who are willing to put in some hours and, you know, really do what needs to be done to, to get everything organized. Joe, how far in advance would you plan if you were going to do your own con independently? I'd start about a year before I wanted to run it, honestly. That's about right. Yeah. I might have had a different answer for you before I worked on Comic Palooza, but you you start on the next one practically before the first one goes off. (laughs) All right. What about how do you pick a date or how do you find a venue? Well, dates are uh, dependent probably somewhat on, on venue availability. Uh, which is the second part of your question. But other than that, I would say just be aware of other events in your area that are likely to draw in the same crowd and try not to schedule for those dates. Conflicts can can sometimes cause problems for an event that's just getting started when it would otherwise be a great event. You know, also holidays are key. If your con is going to attract mostly locals, you want to avoid holidays. If your con, on the other hand, is going to try, if your goal is to attract a lot of visitors from out of town, scheduling around school breaks can be a really great way to do it. And when you're talking about holidays and other events going on, one thing I would recommend that I've seen happen a couple of times are conventions that schedule, unfortunately, at the same time, another event is going on in town that is booking up the hotels, taking up the restaurant reservations, things like that. So if you've got people traveling in, and that's the crowd you're looking for. Or if you're in an area that's going to have a lot of traffic, like if you're, if you're in one downtown hotel 
and there's another hotel that's having, say, a Shriners convention, realize that's going to cause a big conflict. I remember one of the worst stories I heard was from the early 2000s, there was a giant Baptist convention right next door to a role-playing game anime convention with all the co- demonic cosplay that was going on. Oh, my. Well, I think, you know, picking a venue, I mean, that's that's a big deal, right? you got to find a place that's got enough room that's air-conditioned, ideally, uh, and that isn't going to break your bank. So places I've seen that are reasonably affordable, I and mean, we've already mentioned, you know, game stores are one way to do it. VFW halls are often a, usually a fairly low investment. There's a lot of different hotels that have business space, or you, you may even have a local convention center. Uh, certain uh, organizations like the YMCA sometimes have uh, room available. So, you know, look around. Schools. Well, I know, well, I know one con that I go to um, locally is, is called MagCon, and it's actually a fundraiser for a school, and so it's hosted at the school. And the school is within walking distance of a couple of small hotels, and it's really nice because it's a small convention, but it's got some great space, you know, that is available for us while school is not happening. Yeah, college campus is a really good one. I, I actually said schools are a good idea, and I was actually thinking of the exact same convention. <laughs> Great minds. Yes. I also remember attending a lot of conventions that were surprisingly held. They had meeting spaces at the local shopping mall. If I'm not mistaken, I think a now defunct convention in Houston called Space City Con. Their first one was at the Galleria in Houston. Hmm. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. You can often find venue spaces uh, in, in very unusual places. I, I think it's it's worth casting a wide net. Um, and I would actually go a step further. I would say if you want to run a convention, if you want to organize a small convention for your your gaming group, or if you want to you know someday do a gaming con in your area, I would definitely recommend going back and doing the whole thing we talked about earlier with volunteering. You know, maybe even going up and getting on staff at a convention somewhere and getting some experience with running a con before you go out and try to do it yourself. Because uh, if you do it yourself without any experience, the odds of you succeeding are going to be lower. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> right. And the size of your, you know, what, what is your goal? You're going to always bear your goal in mind. If, if you want to, um, you know, achieve convention status right off the bat, to go into it without experience seems, you know, almost suicidal. But if your goal is small, a small event, a few tables, a couple hundred people, then, you know, the Go for it. You may have some brilliant ideas. Just enlist the help of a lot of committed people, like Ross was saying, and ask some questions, perhaps. But there's no reason not to do this, to, not to do it. But if your goal is, is convention-level success, get some experience, volunteer with a local uh, con, or, or uh, travel to one, see how Chupacabra's run, or Palooza. You know, let's say that I have set up a small con, you know, just for the sake of argument. How do I... I mean, obviously, you know, we talked about doing it as a, a charity, but how do I, you know, make money at this? How do I get this con to thrive with enough cash for next year's venue to be bigger? Well, cost is a, that's a really broad topic. If you're a nonprofit seeking corporate sponsorship, it's probably a really brilliant way to go. Enlist the help of someone who knows how to write grant requests, someone who knows how to deal with corporate sponsorship situations and seek out advice. Um, in Boulder, for example, there's a, an organization that assists nonprofits figuring out how to raise funds and they don't charge a thing for their advice. So there, there are, there's assistance out there, but if, if you're not going the nonprofit route and you just want to, how do I make a very profitable con? 
you know, the real question is, how do you balance what you charge versus what you give to the attendees? Right. It's all about value, right? Yeah. The Denver cons are, uh, they're all role-playing miniatures, games, uh, board games, painting miniatures, and rail events. There's not a lot of uh, panels or workshops that could generate special revenue. We don't have a, an after-hours ball, although I'd love to do it someday. Um, we don't have other sources of revenue, so we kind of have to be careful how we spend. I've, I'm not sure what they've got going on at Chupacabacon or uh, or at the Comic Palooza. I was just about to say, uh, Sheena has some experience with uh, crowdfunding at convention. I do have some experience with crowdfunding at a convention. We did do a Kickstarter. Um, unfortunately, we were within $200 of funding and did not make it. Bummer. But, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of a bummer. But the good news was that a lot of the people who uh, donated to that Kickstarter or, or had planned to were vendors who then turned around and just bought a vendor table. And so we didn't really lose out anything by doing that. And I think we attracted some new potential gamers because they found us via Kickstarter. And so that was really great. But as far as the finances are concerned, you know, our long-term plan, we don't really plan on becoming profitable for at least the first five years. I mean, we just don't see it. You know, I'm putting a lot of my personal money into this. And so, you know, we're, we're just spending what we need to spend in order to make it successful and to make it a good experience. As we get more sponsors and as we get bigger, then, you know, hopefully we'll end up being, you know, further in the black um, as we go along and we can then turn around and do more charitable activities, which, you know, is ultimately what we want to be able to do. That's awesome. Uh, Joe, what do you, what do you have to say about value and the uh, cost of a ticket and things of that nature? Yeah, it is an interesting balancing act. Uh, one that I don't actually personally have to deal with too much. <laughs> uh, because Comic Palooza is very broad in scope, you know, our, our chairman, who actually doesn't rotate for us, uh, he sets the, the prices and takes care of balancing the budget and, and all of that stuff. So typically we're just given an amount of money that we can use some sort of budget for our department that he's fit into the overall picture. I know we use sponsors quite a bit. You know, we've partnered actually with the city of Houston. So that gets us a really nice rate on the convention center downtown. We don't pay as much as most people would. So there's, there's things like that, uh, that help out. There, there's a lot of risk and especially in film and television celebrities, we bring in a lot of those people and they, there's almost always, uh, a minimum amount that you guarantee that they will make. And so you have to be very careful about how many of them you invite and how you allocate that. Cause there's only so much money to go around. You know, your, your attendees don't just have infinite cash. They're going to spend on certain things. And of course, anyone that comes up short, you end up owing for that difference. So John started very small with comic Palooza when he started, I want to say it was like 50 people the first year he ran it. So, is definitely one of those start small kind of things. I think they held it in a, in a bar, and then they moved to a, a local mall, and then they they finally got into a convention center as a as a true convention uh, several years after they started. So definitely starting small helps. Now there's a lot of things that are, are related to gaming that happen at gaming conventions. We haven't actually talked about things like LARPing very much uh, as one example, which is definitely gaming. It's just a different type of gaming. 
we talked a little bit about tournaments. Like tournaments are a great way to uh, get people to come to your cons, uh, especially if it's like a, you have opportunities for people to run really big, really awesome uh, miniature game tournaments, right, Joe? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good way to get get, get some people to come in. But I would actually even go so far as to say uh, there's some other gaming-related stuff that you can do to bring in people, uh, you know, costume contest or, you know, partner up with a local anime crowd and, and show some movies or something of that nature. It, there's actually a uh, – in Minneapolis, they have a, a video room that they do every year that shows, you know, gaming-related films. I, I Things like, I guess, would be this year would be like Zero Charisma or, you know, Dark Dungeons. So if you want to take a break from gaming, you go watch a movie. <laughs> Uh, and that's going to bring in people who just want to watch really cool movies. And then, you know, who knows? Maybe they'll start gaming. Those are just a few ideas off the top of my head. Have you guys got any others? Party. <laughs> the room parties. Oh, my God. Yeah. Or specifically like a dance party on Saturday night, something like that, especially if you have a theme for a costume style party where it's not required, but it's encouraged. Uh, I know Gen Con did one of those with an 80s night. I know that Comic Palooza, I believe, has a costume ball on Saturday nights, doesn't it? Yeah, they usually have either a costume ball or steampunk ball, uh, something along those lines. I know they've got uh, costume contests, and these are things that I, I'm aware of. I don't generally interact directly with them because they're part of different tracks, but they definitely help pull in a larger crowd. And if you're doing a charitable con, you could actually reach out to the 501st Legion, the Stormtrooper, and other Imperial cosplayer guys, and they will usually come and show up. Absolutely. If it's a charity. In fact, I believe they do a charity laser tag at Comic Palooza. Oh, wow. That's very cool. Another thing you could try doing is, especially if you're working for a charity, is auctions. Oh, yeah. If you can get, if you can get rare or signed material from your guests, or even auction off a spot in a charity game table with uh, one of your guests, get such and such big name developer or author to run a game for you. Or get your character and drawn by an artist guest. Like exactly. as a you know, character commission kind of thing. I can't take notes fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth noting that, that some of these things are easier to accomplish. I've found they're easier to accomplish with gaming guests than they are with some of the quote-unquote celebrities who will want it in their contract if they're going to do something. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's worth noting that. I mean, uh, I imagine if you're going to start your own con, uh, you're going to look for somebody you know that you know is going to be a draw that you may know if you know a guy like, well, for example, I am usually available if someone wants me to come to their con. <laughs> you know, there's there's a con actually in Finland that I went to a year ago, uh, Trakon, which is just amazing. Those guys over there, they know how to put on one hell of a gaming con. And uh, one thing I thought they did great over there, for example, is they had a really nice bag check area. Where if you were bringing in your big bag full of books to run a game, if you wanted to just kind of put it down and walk around for a while, you go over to the bag check area and they, you know, had a couple of, you know, uh, nice people, volunteers would take your bag and give you a little, uh, I think it was a clothes pin with a number written on it that you could then just put, you know, somewhere on your body. And then when you wanted your bag, you go back and, you know, give them the clothes pin. Uh, that was a handy little thing. That's a good idea. That's great. Yeah. The finish, man, they are, they are gamers par excellence. <laughs> Uh, my friend Daryl Hardy's going, going over there this year. Good luck, Daryl. Okay, so we've talked about a bunch of different ideas on how to put on your own con, and we've talked about all the ins and outs of gaming cons, and I think we've actually covered a, a lot of ground here. So I kind of want to turn it over to the guests, but before I do that, I want to check with Daryl. Daryl, do you have anything you want to say or want to ask our guests about gaming conventions? 
Not that I can think of off the top of my head. I think we pretty much covered everything I was curious about. All right. So I am going to turn it over for final thoughts on gaming conventions and organizing gaming conventions. Let's start with, we'll give Ed a little more time to write some notes. So we'll start with Joe (laughs) Charles. I think it helps if you're a little crazy. (laughs) Just a little. You know, it's it's one of those things that you really want to focus on, as, as we mentioned earlier, on the experience that you're providing for the gamers or just general attendees for the, the broader conventions. You really want to focus on the experience that you're giving them. And if you, one way to start is to attend a lot of different gaming conventions and see what they're doing and what you like and what you don't like and find out how you can implement those things that you do like and avoid the things that you don't. Uh, Because attending conventions and seeing those things firsthand is going to help get you started on that thought process. There's so many things that go into it that you will find as you start trying to run one. Uh, So getting a little exposure from people that have been in running a convention or, or gaming track is very helpful. So just like if you want to be a game designer, you need to go play some games. If you want to organize a con or be part of a con or maybe do your own con someday, go to a lot of cons. That would be my suggestion, yeah. <laughs> All right, one one last question for you, sir, before I, I turn it over to someone else. What is something you absolutely do not want to do when you're running a con? You just don't want to give a bad experience. You, you don't want people to show up and have things not be organized. And you know, I joked about CDO at the, at the beginning, but... There's a lot to that. Uh, one of the things I found that I wouldn't necessarily have, have thought of directly is that I've been to conventions where you go in and, and the game area isn't necessarily organized. There's not necessarily an assigned table. And that sort of thing really doesn't go over well, especially when you start bringing in companies, because companies want people to be able to find them. And if you don't have uh, your space laid out and organized, and some dedicated space where you can say, yes, this is where you can find this group or this company, that tends to discourage them and, and make them a little less enthusiastic about attending your convention. That's good advice. Thank you very much. Sheena Colbath, what are your final thoughts on game conventions and organizing them? Be prepared to do more work than you think you'll do, and everything is more expensive than you think it's going to be. But if you put your heart into it, It'll be one of the most rewarding experiences you can ever have. What is something you absolutely do not want to do? I think I have to concur that you don't want to give your gamers a bad experience. So if they have a problem, think creatively and solve it. If there's not enough tables, find two tables in the lobby and push them together. Do whatever you have to do to make sure that their gaming experience is wonderful. Adapt and overcome. Adapt and overcome. (laughs) All right. Uh, Ed Doolittle, final thoughts on gaming conventions. Yeah, I think it'd be easy to listen to our conversation and and think that we're all of the opinion, and I'm not making, I think none of us are, but it would be easy to listen to this and think that we're of the opinion that if we just open our doors, the GMs will come and run games for us. And of course, that ignores the fact that without the GMs, there's no convention. You know, most of these people that come and run games for us prepare in advance they, they may be running a game that they've been perfecting for years, or they may be running a game that they were inspired to create mere weeks ago. But every, every one of them comes intending to run the most amazing game they could possibly run. And most of them give up a lot of their 
time and they certainly give up their opportunity to go play other people's games so that they can run their own. We have some fantastic game masters at Archon and I know you guys do at yours, but part of the reason they're so fantastic is because they love the games as much as the players do or more. Just an example of some shining stars we had at Archon, Ross. I don't know if you interacted with the guys who run uh, Shadowrun. Uh, briefly, yeah. There's a, the Catalyst demo team. They even had uh, color-coordinated outfits <laughs> for the entire weekend. But these guys from Catalyst came. They they had two tables scheduled for each session, and in most sessions they ran four because they actively recruited people without a table. They actively recruited people who I'm not even sure came to role-play in the first place. Um, <laughs> they did a fantastic job of promoting their product and showing people a great time, and I heard nothing but compliments from the players. That's a great point. You know, there are a lot of guys I've met at different cons that basically make it their hobby profession, if you will, to be a excellent game master at cons, and they get followings. They get, you know, people talking at different cons. Like, you go to Gen Con and you say Rod Curry, or you go to Genghis Con and you say Robert Dorf. You know, different different names that can actually get people to go, oh, yeah, Right. You know, their eyes light up and they're like, I remember that guy. There are people who absolutely make it their you know, life's mission to run great con games. You, you have a great point in calling them out. So what is something you should absolutely not do when you're running a convention? <laughs> I hate to come across negative, but when someone says they're going to be there to help you out, don't take them at their word. Make backup plans. Have, have, have a plan B for everything. Okay. <laughs> have a backup. Yeah. Okay. That is a great idea. And uh, to close this out, I want to ask a, a, just a quick quick question. You know, one thing's big right now in the gaming industry, uh, especially in the larger awareness of games, is the idea of cons being a safe place and having harassment policies and having, having an understanding from the guys who run it that people are there to have a good time and not to be, you know, ogled or harassed or things of that nature. Have you guys got anything you want to say about that topic? One of my... Game Master, she actually runs uh, Dungeons and Dragons Next this year. Hannah, she brought an article to my attention about exactly that. And it's X something, let me find it. It's on my to-do list before Genghis Khan is to read it and try to incorporate it into our platform. But it's a it's an anti-bullying, anti-discrimination plan. Have you heard of it? Can you save me before I have to go searching for this? Uh, I've heard of many of them that are out there. And I think it's wonderful that you guys are embracing one. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, it definitely needs to be on the on the plan. Because our catalog, if you look at the catalog for Genghis Khan and Tacticon, there is a section on on role play code of conduct. But it's terribly out of date, to be honest. It doesn't address these questions, and it should. What about you, Sheena? Well, definitely having a code of conduct you know, in the booklet. And then you know, we also have people that volunteer specifically to be, well, we're not allowed to call them security because of things, but those particular people's job is to basically just sort of police the con and walk around and make sure everyone's having a good time. And, you know, we let people know at the beginning of the con, you know, if you have an issue, you can find someone with a staff shirt and they'll help you. Okay. Joe Charles. We have some policies. I don't know if we've, well, I personally at least have not written up a, a code of conduct. I'll have to check and see if they have one in place. It's certainly something we should have. But we do take it they seriously. Do. And, and 
and this goes back to something we discussed earlier, which is give the con staff some feedback. You know, if you are experiencing something negative, please let us know. We can't fix it. We can't take action if we don't know about it. And, you know, a lot of times those are the sorts of people that aren't necessarily going to commit their action, you know, publicly for everyone to see it happen. So do, do speak up and let us know. All right. I do know that there's one thing that I've taken to heart that a lot of people have recommended, and that is anytime I'm looking at a convention, anytime I'm thinking about attending a convention, I always check their website for anti-harassment, anti-bullying policies that are clearly stated on the website. And if I don't see one, I'll request that they I'll, I'll bring it to their attention. You don't have one. You really should. And in some cases, in case of very some very small cons I've seen where I've gotten feedback of we don't feel that's necessary, I've second-guessed over whether I'm going to attend that con or not. Well, it's certainly a, a, an issue that's, you know, becoming more and more, I would say, uh, prominent amongst uh, convention goers. And this is actually true for gaming cons, not gaming cons, you know. But a lot of a lot of gaming conventions have things that are, are you know, in and around the same kind of stuff that these uh, people are talking about. So... Yeah, it, it's important to talk about it. I'm glad we brought it up. And it seems like everybody's on the same page. We definitely want to have a safe, uh, fun environment for everybody when we go to a convention, especially for our particular tribe, which is the tabletop gamers. You know, let's let us be the standard and let us, you know, show the way. That's what I say. Uh, that, that's a great point, because on the one hand, role players and gamers are some of the most open minded people you're going to run into. But we we got our genesis at the hands of a largely homogenous, homogenized group of white men. And so there's a lot of history. Um, and I think, I think that there's a lot of growth to be had, but we, we could be uh, trail breakers. All right. So why don't you guys tell us about your con and where we can find it on the interwebs? Because the Imperial Guard are looking into the tavern and it looks like we're, we're getting ready to close here. Sheena, tell us, where can we find out about Chupacabra Con? So ChupacabraCon.com is our website, and our convention is January 9th through the 11th, 2015, at the Norris Conference Center in Austin, Texas. Thank you very much. Uh, Joe Charles, Comic Palooza can be found where? Comicpalooza.com, conveniently enough. Uh, <laughs> also, our, our gaming registration is handled on Comicpaloozagames.com, which is linked from the main website, but you can also go there directly if you wish. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Comic Palooza. Um, I think we have a Twitter account as well, although I can't pull that one off the top of my head. <laughs> um, and we're Memorial Day weekend every year. So. In Houston, Texas. In Houston, Texas at the George R. Brown. All righty. Well, and the, it's uh, at Comic Palooza is the Twitter yes, account. Oh, there we go. I thank follow you. it. So. Uh, Ed Doolittle, tell us about it. Genghis Khan and Tacticon. Uh, Genghis Khan and Tacticon are our two annual conventions in Denver. You can find information about them at Denver Gamers Association on Facebook or denvergamers.org on the internet. And we run our cons over President's Day weekend and Labor Day weekend every year in Aurora, Colorado. The uh, President's Day weekend con, it's worth noting, also generally occurs over Valentine's Day weekend. So... That's always wonderful for those with partners who don't game. <laughs> he said, ironically, <laughs> like most of the things I said. Nice. 
All right. Uh, I want to say on behalf of Daryl and myself, uh, we're very grateful to have the three of you join us tonight and talk about gaming conventions because going to gaming conventions is one of the things, it is one of my favorite things to do as a gamer. Here, here. Absolutely. I wish I could do both run them and play at them. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Anytime, you're, right. anytime you're running, you never get to play. So, <laughs> Daryl, anything else before we uh, close the bar? Uh, if you've got a convention near you or if you've got one that you're looking at, definitely check it out, especially these three we've been mentioning. Yes. Because uh, Comic Palooza is a blast. I've been to that one, and I have heard nothing but good things about Chupacabracon, Tacticon, and Genghis Khan. Yes, absolutely. And if you are a convention that wants to spread the word a little bit, don't hesitate to contact us at the Gamers Tavern. And we will be, you know, happy to talk about it or, you know, who knows, attend as guests and talk about it while we're there. Just saying. All right. And until next time, may all your hits be crits. So that about wraps things up for this week. So it's been a while, but we're doing some comments. But before I get to that, just so you know, in the show notes, I have several links to places to help you find conventions near you. Three of those are the largest organized playgroups out there. Pathfinder Society, Dungeons and Dragons Adventure League, and Magic the Gathering Play Network. Now, each one of these has a few downsides to trying to find conventions through them. There's the Pathfinder Society that shows all the events. That includes both in-store and conventions, so you're going to have to do a little bit of digging, especially if you have a very active community in your town. Now, the D&D Adventure League only shows in-store events right now, but I talked to them on Twitter, and they have assured me that that's going to change soon. Finally, we've got the Magic the Gathering Play Network, which at this point in time only shows the Grand Prix events. That's like the Magic the Gathering Professional Circuit qualifiers. Honestly, the best way to go to find a convention near you is to just go to Google, type in convention and the nearest big city to you, and click around a bit. So... Well, that said, let's go ahead and read some comments. First, we got a review on iTunes from Zarin Black. Love the show. Very intelligent discussions. Thank you very much, Zarin. And if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, you can find us on iTunes by searching for Gamers Tavern Podcast. Now we're going to Facebook with Crichton Brown, who said about our uh, last week's episode about Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. I'll be rolling up characters tomorrow for 5th edition. So far, I really like what I've read. And so do I. And, again, not edition warriors here. I'm still playing Pathfinder. I'm playing in a Pathfinder game. I'm about to start running a Pathfinder game. Uh, we're about to start up recording the Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition starter set game table episodes very soon. So, And I'm also planning a 5th edition campaign I'm probably going to wait to get to until some of the other things drop off because you can only run so many games before you hit burnout. But trust me, there's nothing wrong with either system. There's nothing wrong with 3rd edition, 3.5, 2nd, 1st, or 4th, or basic. So, edition wars are bullshit. That said, I'm really happy with 5th edition right now. It's probably my favorite for fantasy role-playing in terms of exploration and social interactions and things like that. Pathfinder it hits a nerve for like really crunchy, nitty gritty, complicated rule systems that fifth edition just can't satisfy yet because it's only got the three basic books out there. Speaking of going to Twitter at Kinderath says, you have all three books yet? Well, at the time we recorded the show, the player's handbook had just come out and we hadn't had either the monster manual or the dungeon master's guide. At this point in time, Sean, Ross, and I have all three books and 
like I said at the intro to the show, everything we said about it still stands. We're all still in love with it. The new edition is great. They did an amazing job. Now, here's a little conversation that happened on Twitter. It started off with at Chris Avalon, who said, Grats to the Gamers Tavern Kickstarter and all who pitched in. If interested in the next stages, just click here, and he linked to our episode two weeks ago, it was a happy hour, about the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, then we've got at Offermod, who said, I saw that name and thought it was an actual brick-and-mortar pub with beer. Chris Avalon replied, I, I, now I can't get that beautiful image out of my head. And at Gamers Tavern PC replied, well, if we ever get the money, it will be great to open a recording studio slash gamer pub. Chris Avalon then replied, if you do, I, correction, we are there. And Offermod said, hell, first round's on me. And you can archive this and print it out to hold me to it if it comes to that. Okay, everyone. So, uh, we're going to open up about a 150 seat bar. We're going to have a grand opening with 150 people. The first round is on at Offermod. And it's going to be a shot of plain tap water that costs $2,000. That should cover the cost of getting the place opened up. But in all seriousness, that's kind of a pipe dream. If I win the lottery kind of thing, I would love to do that. Maybe in a couple years we'll do a Kickstarter if there's interest. I don't know. But yeah, opening up a restaurant, pub, and recording studio so we can record all our episodes live in front of an audience while everyone's enjoying themselves, playing games, drinking beer. That would be just absolutely amazing. But eh, maybe sometime in the future. And we also have finally from Twitter, at Melodic Infusion, who said, Cheers, and thanks for picking our song. Now, at Melodic Infusion is a German melodic punk band that is absolutely amazing, and you know them a little bit because they play the Gamer's Tavern theme song. They also play the bed music for our Kickstarter video as well. So you've heard a couple of their songs already. They're really amazing. You should check them out. Next, we're going to come back home to the Gamer's Tavern with some comments on some episodes. Todd Stoops says, First off, love the podcast and everything you folks do. This is off the main topic of this particular episode, but I wanted to touch on a statement that I've heard expressed a couple of times regarding Shadowrun and it, quote, not allowing characters to take a strong moral stance. I know you guys know, as well as I do, that one of the most awesome points of that setting is the absolute depth and breadth of its source material, and getting stuck in the rut of assuming a purely Shadowrunner or Street campaign is the only possibility and the expression of so is doing a great setting a huge disservice i understand very well the draw of shooting people in the face for money and certainly give you the ease of get the job plan job do job profit adventuring paradigm but there's so much more in that world that can be explored and no reason it should be pigeonholed to the assumed campaign concept thanks a ton for everything you guys do now one thing i want to talk about on this is you are absolutely right there is nothing stopping you from playing a campaign that's all about goody two-shoes doing nice things. And I don't mean that insulting. I call my paladins that I play and love goody two-shoes too because that's what they are. But it's completely possible to play a very strong moral character in Shadowrun. It is even possible to play a moral Shadowrunner. It's just not the typical game, and it's also not something that the setting itself rewards. There are no good guys in Shadowrun. Even the closest thing we have to a good guy, Dunkelzon, 
was an utter bastard. Read his will and what he did to a lot of people, even though he did so much to save the world, which we will be talking about next week, a little bit more on that later. But so much that he did for the sixth world, and he's still an utter bastard. And he's the closest thing we got to a good guy. Same thing with Harlequin. Bastard. There are no good guys in Shadowrun. There are a lot of bad guys. It is a gray-on-black world. And occasionally you'll find someone who is just that shining beacon of hope and light. They get snuffed out very fast because the world crushes them in one way or another. That's just the nature of, not just the setting, but the genre of cyberpunk has always been that way. It rewards the cynical and the paranoid and punishes the idealistic. And that's not a bad thing. Unless what you're wanting is an idealistic game, in which case, Shadowrun can work for you still. You just have to tweak the campaign. Uh, Sean Patrick Fanon, for example, almost refuses to play Shadowrun because of its gray on black morality. And I've got an idea for a campaign I want to run with him in it to show him that it is possible to be the good guys, even if you're not the good guys, if you see what I'm saying. Spoiler alert, bugs. But... With that said, yes, I understand what you're saying, but the system doesn't really, the setting even doesn't really lend itself well to a paladin-type character. Then again, Dresden Files, you'd think, wouldn't lend itself either, but there's Michael and the other Swords of the Cross. What do you know? Anyway, we're going to close out with Corey Gilman, who writes, Just finished listening to the episode. Uh, This was on our 5th edition episode last week. Just finished listening to the episode. It was enjoyable as always. First, let me say I like how 5th edition looks. It feels like it has taken lessons from all the previous edition as well as its competitors. That said, there is something that has bothered me about 5th edition, or rather people's reactions to it. This relates to the inspiration mechanic. I like the idea, but there are a couple of things that I think people are overlooking. First, which is not a reflection of the mechanic system or its creators, is that I am sick of inspiration being called innovative. Several games have had similar mechanics in place in the core rules long before 4th edition, much less 5th edition, existed. To the pop immediately to mind are Exalted by White Wolf and 7th C by Alderac Entertainment Group. Both of these systems create, uh, contained rules which were similar to this rule. The second thing is this. Some people have talked about inspiration like it is some godsend that totally fixes the role-playing in RPGs. In the end, it is a system that still requires adjudication by the GM and is therefore subject to being ignored, misused, abused, and forgotten like any other system. I watched the previous two systems I mentioned as the GM was incredibly stingy with acknowledging them or, in the heat of the moment, forgot them. I myself was going with the best of intentions after... watching this from others and forgot to apply those systems and the rewards even in the case of 7th C where the system in question, Drama Dice was incredibly ingrained into the system none of this is to say I think Inspiration is a bad system, far from it I simply want people to remember that for the system to work as is intended it must be paid attention to and acknowledged by the GM fairly and generously ugh Corey, that was a very long comment, but very well thought out and researched. Uh, I just needed a drink, uh, got my throat a little dry. Anyway, uh, I think what the problem with a lot of people calling inspiration so revolutionary and brand new is that it is revolutionary and brand new to 
Dungeons and Dragons specifically. And that's not even to say D20 systems because Mutants and Masterminds has kind of a Benny reward system as well. But called the hero point. I believe it's hero points. I'm sorry. It's been a while since I edited one of the Mutants and Masterminds episodes and I haven't really played much of it myself, but there is a kind of a boost mechanic in that as well that you're rewarded on on roleplay. And it's a D20 system. So this is not a new concept. And Benny's that build off rewards go back to as well as the games you mentioned, uh, Fate and Savage Worlds. So to say it's new to role playing, yes, it's not that innovative in a role playing game, but it is innovative to Dungeons and Dragons. If you think back to about 2000 when or third edition came out, people thought that the skill system in that was revolutionary for Dungeons and Dragons, even though every system from FASA, every system from White Wolf, uh, Palladium, GURPS, all these had skill systems that were kind of similar in the way they were scoped out compared to second edition's uh, non-weapon proficiencies. You got kind of the same reaction where it was, they were excited because they was new to D&D. And you have to remember, for a lot of people, role-playing games is Dungeons & Dragons. I've run Shadowrun games. I have run fucking, fucking Battletech MechWarrior games where someone will get a call or get a text or something and say, Oh, I'm sorry, I can't right now. I'm playing D&D. When it's the furthest thing from D&D. But... It's a role-playing game. It's kind of like Kleenex for tissue. It's almost become a generic brand name. So, yes, I see what you're saying, but it does deserve that praise. And I think it will do a lot more than you think. I see what you're saying also about forgetting it. When you listen to the D&D game table episodes, you'll see me forgetting to give inspiration a lot. Because it was a new mechanic when I was running the game. It was new to me. I haven't played a whole lot of games with reward boost mechanics very often. I'm mainly stuck with D&D, Shadowrun, and White Wolf games. So most that's where most of my gaming experience is. I've dabbled in a lot of other games, but none of them really had that mechanic at its core. So I keep forgetting to hand it out a lot of times. And you'll see me just saying, everyone has inspiration because everyone's done something awesome an hour into the session. So, and then I, like, I actually got to the point where I was running the game. I would have on my notes, check for inspiration here. And I would have, like, on my, I have a printout of the characters, what their passive perception is, what their AC is, what their bonus to initiative is, little things like that. I also wrote out their, and a phonetic pronunciation of their names because Magni, not Magni, Bellian, not Bellan. Anyway. I also had all their different character traits. So I would know when they were playing to those traits so I could reward them with inspiration. So that's a little trick you can do if you think you're the type that's going to be forgetting that is make yourself a cheat sheet that's going to help you out in the game in a lot of ways. AC, you don't have to ask them what their AC is. You know what it is. Passive perception, you don't have to ask them and tip them off that they're trying to find something or they missed something if they didn't meet it. Uh Phonetic pronunciation of their names, it lets you call the character, the players by their character name and help them get into character as well. So you're not just saying, hey, Ross, what do you do? No. Hey, Morgan, what do you do? And finally, you know when to give out inspiration. Little freebie tip right there. So, so that about wraps things up for this episode. Next week, 
We're going back to the sixth world, chummers. Wait, no, 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 no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I may have gotten some of you too excited. We're not doing the Shadowrun Game Table episode just yet. Those are going to be coming in a few weeks. But we still have Stephen Bullrakovic and returning guest Rusty Zimmerman on for the next in our campaign setting series, Shadowrun. We're going to be talking about the sixth world, chummers. Come on. You know you've been waiting for us to gush for two hours about Shadowrun again. Anyway, until next time, the tavern is closed. Hi, this is Sean Patrick Fannin, founder and chief visionary officer of Evil Beagle Games. We're the publisher of Shintar, the epic high fantasy setting for Savage Worlds. It's like Lord of the Rings meets Die Hard. We also publish the very cool and quirky deck-building game, Colossal Clash. The Beagle's proud to sponsor the Gamer's Tavern, a place where you can relax and get schooled at the same time. Seriously, you listen to these guys, you get free points on your gamer knowledge score. So grab a drink and listen to my friends Ross Watson and Daryl Mott as they interview the best and the brightest in the hobby about all kinds of great stuff, or live play something really cool at the virtual table. And remember, Evil Beagle Games. Bad dog, good games. Now somebody beer me!